So, of course, for our sermon, with it being Easter, naturally, we're going to focus on Christ. We're going to focus on his resurrection, the empty tomb. Of course, we're also going to focus on the cross, his death, as they naturally go hand in hand, his death and then his resurrection. And where I want us to start is just by reading the whole story. I know it's a long passage. We're going to read uh, from the Gospel of John, starting in chapter 19. So you can flip open your Bibles, turn there, John chapter 19, starting with verse 16, actually the second part of verse 16, all the way through to uh, chapter 20, verse 31. So I know a, a big passage, but I, I want us to read through this story of the death and resurrection of Christ. And then we'll take a deeper look at it. We'll look at a bunch of other passages as well. But let's start by reading this. So again, John 19, starting with the second part of verse 16, it says, So they took Jesus, and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the King of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am the King of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture, which says they divided my garments among them and for my clothing, they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour the disciple took her to his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said, to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished, and he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth that you also may believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled, not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. 
So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have, you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and, and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. 
Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And so this, of course, is the story as recounted here in the Gospel of John of Christ's death and his resurrection. But before we really get to the death and resurrection of Christ and talk about that in detail, I really want to set the context, because if we don't really understand the context into which Christ came uh, and died and rose again, then we really miss what his death and resurrection is really all about. And so I sort of want to push the rewind button and go all the way back to the beginning. And so we're actually going to turn to Genesis, and we're going to look at chapter 1 and look at verse 31 there. And what we're going to do is we look at a number of passages here. As I said, we're going to set the stage, and this then helps us to understand why Jesus came, why he died on a cross, and rose again. So this is Genesis 1.31, the first part of the verse, and it says, God saw all that he had made, and it was very good, right? This is sort of the starting point that sort of sets the stage. God created everything that was, and he made it good. It was very good. It was perfect. All of creation, mankind at that point, right? Now we look around and we see all sorts of brokenness and sin and evil in our world. But at this point, right, when God created everything, it was good. It was perfect. Man was good. Man was perfect. There was no imperfection. There was no sin. There was no evil. Everything was wondrous and perfect, but of course, that only lasts so long. We're going to turn the page and we'll go to Genesis chapter 2 and, and chapter 3. Uh, and we're going to read next chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. So everything's good. Everything is perfect in the Garden of Eden, right, as God made it. And he gives this command, verses 16 and 17 in chapter 2. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden. But you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die, right? So everything's good. Everything's perfect. This is the way God made it. He says you can eat from, from all the trees uh, in the garden, but, but there's just one that you cannot eat from, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, right? Don't eat from that one tree. But of course, what winds up happening, we go to chapter 3 of Genesis, verse 6, and we sort of know the story, I'm sure. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree, this is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that they were not to eat from. When the woman saw that the fruit from the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Right, so what do we have here? We have Adam and Eve, the first man and woman, and they have disobeyed the Lord. God has given them this command, right? Just don't eat from this one tree. You can eat from all of the other trees, but just this one, do not eat from it. And what do they do? They disobey God. They have sinned against him, right? And what are the consequences? Well, we're going to turn to Romans chapter 6, verse 23, to see what is the consequence for sin. And before I even read this, right, the reality is it's not just Adam and Eve who sinned. It's not like, oh, they sinned, but we're all wonderful and perfect. We know we have all sinned, right? Adam and Eve sinned. They rebelled against God. They disobeyed him. And then in that act of sin, right, they became corrupt. They became sinful, broken to the very core of who they are, sinful on the inside. They committed that act of sin, but then became corrupted as well. And in generation after generation, right, including all of us, we're born sinful, broken, corrupt on the inside, and we live at, out that, that sinful nature within us with acts of sin and rebellion against God. And so it's not like Adam and Eve are the only ones who've sinned against God. We've all joined in that sin 
in that rebellion, we have all disobeyed God. And so now what is the consequence, right? What is the consequence, the punishment for our sin? We've disobeyed God and Romans 6.23 says it. For the wages of sin is death. This is the rightful punishment. God is a just God. We've sinned against him. We've disobeyed him and there are consequences. There is punishment in it. It's death and not just in the sense of physical death, though that is certainly part of it and we will all die. That's a reality. But even more than just physical death, there's also a spiritual death. We're cut off from God, separated from him and, and eternal death. We rightfully fall under his eternal judgment and wrath. We deserve the fires of hell for all of eternity. We deserve eternal punishment. Again, this is sort of all the bad news. You might think, man, like this is Easter. Isn't it supposed to be like uplifting and exciting and, and yay, hooray. And Pastor Steve, it sounds like this is all just like a downer. And, and, and I get that so far, it's a downer. But to understand the good news of Christ, the good news of the gospel, to properly understand it, we have to understand the bad news that comes first, which is, well, we've sinned, right? God made us perfect, but we sort of blew it all up. We've sinned, we've rebelled, and we deserve punishment. But fortunately, the story doesn't end there, right? This sort of sets the whole context then for Christ coming to this world. We celebrate that, of course, with Christmas, but, but he came for a purpose and a reason, and he came for the purpose of going to a cross, right? Think of just two days ago, Good Friday. That's what we celebrate. He came to go to a cross. And what did he do there? Well, we read about this in our next passage that we're going to read. This is 1 John chapter 4, verse 10. And it says, this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins, right? This is what Christ has done. This is the, the whole reason for his coming to this earth. This is the whole reason for him going to a cross. It's not like the cross is some sort of accident, like he had some other purpose in mind, but oh, people turned against him and he wound up dead and hanging on a cross. No, he came for that very purpose to go to a cross to make atonement for sin, right? He came for the purpose of rescuing us from our sin. We've sinned, we're under judgment and wrath, but in love he came to save us, to rescue us from our sin by going to a cross and making atonement for sin. And again, to think specifically like what's going on on the cross, he's taking our place, right? God is a just God. We've talked about that. He will punish sin. He's not just going to sort of sweep it under the rug. We might like to sort of think that way. You know, wouldn't it be nice? Like, yeah, we mess up, but just sort of like lift up the corner of that rug, God, and just sort of sweep our sin under there and sort of out of sight, out of mind. No, God, God is just and rightfully so, and, and we've sinned, we've disobeyed him, and, and there's a, a penalty to be paid. There's a punishment that is to be paid. He's just. But what he does is he says, I will punish my son in your place. I will offer a substitute who will take my wrath for you. This is what Jesus does for us. So he takes our place. That's what he's doing when he goes to the cross. He takes our place. He takes our sin upon himself. He takes the punishment that should fall upon me, that should fall upon you, upon every one of us. He takes it himself and he pays for our sin in full. That is what he is doing on the cross. And so Jesus has accomplished this objective work of making atonement for sin, paying for sin in full, but the reality is not all will receive that atoning work of Christ Jesus, right? We're told how a person, in Scripture, we're told how a person receives this work of Jesus, this full payment for sin that he has made, this atonement for sin. How do we, in a personal way, receive that work of Jesus that he accomplished on the cross? Well, we're told in John 3.16, it says, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him 
shall not perish, but shall have eternal life. So he's accomplished this amazing work, making atonement for sin, triumphing over sin on the cross, rising, of course, it's Easter, rising from the dead victoriously. But again, not everyone will receive it. How do we receive that work of his so that our sin is paid for, so that we're forgiven, we're saved, we have everlasting life? We just have to turn to him in saving faith. We just have to believe. And again, scripture is clear in regard to what, what is saving faith. It's repentant faith. It's turning from our sin, our rebellion, turning toward him, giving him that place of supremacy in our lives, in our hearts, where he is first in our lives, where he's first in our hearts, our all, our everything, turning from sin toward him. And again, believing in Christ Jesus, believing in who he is and trusting in him for the forgiveness of our sins through his atoning work on the cross. That's saving faith in Christ. It's that repentant faith in him. That's how we receive that atoning work that he accomplished on the cross. And again, that's the good news, right? We, we start with the bad news. We've sinned. We deserve punishment. We deserve judgment and wrath. That sort of sets the context for Good Friday, Easter. What's this all about? But of course, we aren't just stuck in our sin and no way out. On our own, we would have no way out. But fortunately, in wondrous love, Christ came. He went to a cross, made atonement for sin, rose victoriously. And if we just turn, repent, and believe in him, we're forgiven we're saved, we have everlasting life, right? And that is the gospel message right there, right? In a nutshell, the good news, the bad news that comes first, and then the good news that follows of Christ Jesus and what he has done for us. But, but I realized, right, there might be some people, maybe some people here sitting in our seats or maybe watching, we do a live stream as well and watching from home or we have the recordings. It could be several days from now and someone could be watching and saying, you know, I, I understand what you're saying, Steve. Like, I, I get that. I sort of intellectually understand it, but I, I just don't really believe that, right? That, that sort of is a common viewpoint in our world today, right? That, that you know, hey, I, I understand what the Christian message is, but I'm just sort of not buying it. I don't believe it. Uh, a typical viewpoint might be, you know, I, I know Jesus existed. That's sort of a, a matter of historical fact. No halfway reasonable person denies that. Yes, there was this Jesus who lived 2,000 years ago. Some people might have this perspective that I'm sort of going to lay out. Yeah, I'll acknowledge Jesus lived 2,000 years ago. He had this, this preaching and teaching ministry around Israel, Judea, and, and Galilee, and so forth. And yes, of course, he died on a cross. Again, that's just sort of a matter of historical fact that, that even non-Christians will, will certainly acknowledge. But, but the viewpoint might be, but I don't, I don't join in with Christians and believe that this was God the Son and that he died on the cross to make atonement for sin. Many might sort of say, I just think he was kind of like a regular old guy who had some positive things to say and talk about and teach. But, you know, some people sort of rallied against him and he wound up hanging on a cross. And then they might go on to say, you know, he was a regular guy. And, and so I think when he died, he stayed dead and didn't really rise from the grave. That sort of is a common viewpoint in our world today in regard to who Jesus is. And I sort of want to respond to that perspective and really say, and this is what I'm going to seek to do. If I can really show using evidence, we'll look at scripture, but we'll also sort of look outside of scripture as well, because I realize someone with that viewpoint might say, hey, Christians regard scripture highly, but for some who aren't Christians, they might say it's just another book to me and I don't necessarily regard it highly. Some might say that. And so we're going to look within scripture, but also outside of scripture. And I want to show a great amount of evidence in support of the resurrection. Because if we can show that the resurrection really was a historical event, if we can lay out all of the evidence and say, look, the evidence is just overwhelming. It's just so clear. This really did happen. He really did rise from the dead. If that's the case, then that sort of viewpoint of Jesus is just some regular old guy who died for no reason and stayed dead just all falls apart. 
and crumbles. If he really did rise from the grave, if that tomb really was empty, he rose from the dead, well, then he can't be some regular old guy because regular old guys don't rise from the dead, right? If he truly rose from the dead, if I can show that, and, and I, I, I feel I certainly can, and we'll look at all of the evidence, uh, but if he really did rise from the dead, then he must be who he said he was. He must really be God the Son in the flesh. And he must really have accomplished what he said he was going to accomplish on the cross. He must really have truly made full atonement for sin and then rose from the dead victoriously. And so I really think that this argument, is sort of this perspective, it really hinges on the resurrection, right? If someone says, I don't really believe it, then they're probably going to have that viewpoint of Jesus was just some regular old guy. But if you can show that the resurrection really, truly happened, it was a historical event, it really took place, then that viewpoint falls apart and Jesus must really be who he said he was. He must have really accomplished what he said he accomplished on the cross and then rose victoriously. So let's take a look for those who, again, might happen to sort of doubt the Christian message, doubt the resurrection. Let's take a look at the evidence in support of the resurrection, the historicity of it. And I'll start by looking at Scripture, but as I said, I also want to look outside of Scripture because not everyone has the same view of the Bible that I do. And so I want to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 through 8, and you can turn there if you'd like. And this is Paul the Apostle writing uh, to the Corinthian church, and here's what he has to say. He says, For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born." Right? And so what does Paul wind up making reference to here? He's making reference to all of the eyewitness accounts and testimonies, all of the people who truly saw Jesus risen from the dead, alive in the flesh after they had seen him die on the cross. He was dead. He was buried. They knew it. And yet then after that, they saw him risen from the dead. And right, he makes reference to even just speaking of one point, he says just at one time that he appeared to his followers, he appeared to more than 500 of his followers, not to, not to even speak to the other times that he appeared to other people as well. But even at just one time, he appeared to over 500 people. And he even backs that up. Paul even says in a sense, sort of like, and you can even go and ask most of them. At the time of his writing this, he's saying, most of them are still alive. You could go over, you could go talk to them, and they'd all tell you the same story, right? They knew he had died. They'd seen him crucified. He was buried. He was in the tomb. And then after that, he rose from the dead and appeared to them alive again in the flesh. And again, he says, most of them are still alive. You can go and, and check the facts, and they'll all tell you the same thing. And again, if we're going to be fair, and you just sort of think of even our legal system in the courts, if you have some sort of trial, right, if you have an eyewitness testimony, maybe it's a murder trial, you have an eyewitness saying, you know, I, I was there, I saw him pull out the gun, and he shot the person, and he killed them, you have a pretty good case, right? If you're the prosecutor, you have a pretty good case that you can make there. If you have like two or three eyewitness testimonies that, that can corroborate that same story and say, yeah, we, we all saw that, right? It's probably sort of like case closed, it's over, that guy's done for, he's going to be convicted. Now imagine if you had 500 plus eyewitnesses who can say, we were all there, we all saw it, right? That's sort of like, it, it, the guy's done for it, it, you know, 
it's certain, right? It's just clear, very clear. The evidence is so overwhelming. 500 plus eyewitness accounts. I mean, you never have that. And if you did, it's like case closed. It's over, done for. Like that's like a one hour long trial and he's going to be convicted and it's over, right? Um, but I think all too often when it comes to Jesus, suddenly, you know, people don't apply the same rules or the same logic and just, you know, I can't believe. I just, it's too miraculous. Rising from the dead. I just can't believe that rather than saying, that is powerful eyewitness testimony. If, if 500 people bore witness to anything else, I'd be happy to believe it. So why not this? Why not when it pertains to Jesus and his resurrection? And again, the, these were eyewitnesses too who, who were so certain of what they saw, they were willing to die for it. They knew what they had seen. They knew they had seen him die. They'd seen him in the tomb and then they saw him again, risen from the dead in the flesh. They were so certain of it that they were willing to die for it. And a great many of Christ's followers early in the life of the church did pay for, for their faith with their lives. They were persecuted severely and often to the point of death. And again, they were certain of it. They weren't going to budge. They knew what they had seen. They knew it was true and they were willing to die for it. These weren't wishy-washy eyewitnesses. I think I saw that and then they cave when their life is on the line. They knew what they saw. They were certain and they were willing to die for it. And I want to take a quote here from, uh, it's, it's, one of my favorite sort of extra biblical quotes pertaining to sort of scriptural things related to the resurrection. This is a quote from Dr. Simon Greenleaf. I, I've used this before, so it may be familiar uh, to you. I'll, I'll sort of give a little background on who is this Dr. Simon Greenleaf, what's sort of the relevance. Um, he was born in 1783 in, in Newburyport, Massachusetts, so not too far, North, North Shore area, uh, not far from here. Uh, died in 1853. Uh, he was a sort of a giant in the field of law, particularly specifically in relation to evidence. Uh, he literally, uh, he was a Harvard University professor of law. He literally wrote the book on evidence entitled Treatise on the Law of Evidence. He was sort of the foremost expert in, in the country, in the world, when it came to law and in particular evidence and evaluating evidence and, and quality evidence and so forth. So if you're sort of thinking of, well, who would you go to? And this was the book that was sort of used, the textbooks that, that he wrote that for sort of the whole 19th century. This was like the, the classic textbook that law, book, law universities, law schools use all over the place in the country. Again, if you were to go to anyone, if you were to pick one person, at least in that time period, 19th century, who you would want to go and say, what do you think about the evidence related to any subject? He would be the foremost expert. So if you want to say, well, what do you think about the evidence related to the resurrection and applying sort of the rules of law to it, he would be the expert to do so. And this is what he does. This is what he has to say on that subject. He says, according to the laws of legal evidence used in courts of law. Again, if you sort of apply the same rules that you would use in the court of law related to evidence and making a case, right? If you would apply that to the resurrection and the evidence supporting that, here's what he says. According to the laws of legal evidence used in courts of law, there is more evidence for the historical fact of the resurrection of Jesus Christ than for just about any other event in history. Right? That's an awfully strong statement. And it's true, we may not realize it, but an awful lot of events that sort of go back in time, all we have to really corroborate that those events took back is maybe it took place is maybe, you know, uh, one or two eyewitness accounts, maybe not even eyewitness accounts. It might be a historian that is sort of getting information second or third hand, maybe even a couple centuries removed of when that event took place. And yet we have no problem putting all of those events in our history books and relating as though it's certain fact. 
But again, then, you know, when we apply these rules to the resurrection, we're happy to believe that. But for so many in our world, then we look at the story of the resurrection and they're this abundant eyewitness testimony all over the place. Yet we're unwilling to say, oh, we can believe that because it's just too difficult to believe someone rising from the dead. But again, the evidence in, in support of the resurrection just is so overwhelming and more than, than a great host of all sorts of historical events that we sort of take as fact and true and don't question. And yet for those other events, we have small amounts of evidence, but, but we feel that's enough. But when it comes to the resurrection, we have a great abundance of evidence, overwhelming. And yet all too often we say, but I refuse to believe it. I want to turn to another extra biblical source. As I said, I don't want to just make a case from the Bible because I know there'd be people who might say, yeah, but I don't believe the Bible's God's word. I mean, I certainly do, but others may not. And so I wanted to make a case also from outside of Scripture. And so I want to read from uh, Josephus. I'll give a little bit of background related to him. Another, this, this is probably my favorite quote related to sort of Christ and who he is outside of the Bible. Uh, Josephus wrote uh, his, one of his great works, The Antiquities of the Jews. A little bit about Josephus. He was a Jewish historian uh, born about 37 AD. Uh, so right after the time of Christ, right after the death and resurrection of Christ, usually Christ's death is dated to either 30 or 33 AD. So this would be sort of four or seven years after, after Christ died. That's when Josephus was born. So all of this was like recent history. It was still at the forefront of people's minds. Um, at, at the time of his life. He lived to about 100 AD, uh, and he wrote Antiquities of the Jews toward the end of the first century, 93-94 AD. Um, and, and a little bit more about him, he was a, a Jew, uh, a Jew who had a leading role in a rebellion against Rome, but, but that rebellion didn't go so well. And when it didn't go so well, he sort of flipped sides and sort of joined the Roman side. And, and in no way was he a Christian. I want to make this clear. Don't think this is sort of a Christian who's just sort of giving his Christian views. This is someone who, as a, as a non-Christian Jew, didn't have any real great love for Christians or for Christ. And, and as sort of someone who then sided with the Romans after he sort of flipped sides, uh, again, sort of had no great love for, for Christ or Christians. But he's a reasonable historian, and so he's just going to relate the facts as they are. And this is what he has to say. Again, this is not someone who's a fan of Jesus. He's just a fair historian who's relaying the facts that everyone knows to be true. And here's what he says. Now there was about this time Jesus, a wise man, if it be lawful to call him a man, for he was a doer of wonderful works. And again, this is not someone who's fawning over Jesus because he's this great Jesus follower. This is someone who has no great regard for Jesus. But again, he's just laying out what everyone in his time knows to be true, right? He grew up right after the time of Christ. It would have still been fresh. Everybody knew all of the wondrous miracles that Jesus had done. This was just sort of a matter of fact. You couldn't really question it. There were all the people who had all sorts of sicknesses or were possessed and so forth, and they'd been healed. The evidence was right there. He, you can't deny it, that everyone knew this. He was a doer of wonderful works. And again, what does he say? He's a wise man describing Jesus, if it be lawful to call him a man. It's sort of like Josephus is saying, everyone knows this, this guy wasn't some regular old guy. It's almost like it's wrong just to call him a person. And he's right in his assessment because while Jesus is a person, he's more than just a person. It's God, the son in the flesh. So he goes on, for he was a doer of wonderful works, a teacher of such men as received the truth with pleasure. He drew over to him both many of the Jews and many of the Gentiles. He was the Christ. Notice he doesn't say his followers claimed he was the Christ, claimed he was the Messiah. Again, he's just looking at the facts and it's like, 
how can you really deny it? Like, clearly this guy was the Messiah. That, that's just sort of plain for anyone with eyes to see. And he goes on, and when Pilate, at the suggestion of the principal men among us, had condemned him to the cross, those that loved him at the first did not forsake him, for he appeared to them alive again the third day, right? It doesn't say this is what his followers claim was the case. No, he's just a fair historian. He knows all the evidence. He knows all the people who saw him. The eyewitness testimony just is laying out the facts. This is just a matter of fact. He rose from the dead. He appeared to them alive again on the third day because the divine prophets had foretold these and 10,000 other wonderful things concerning him. And then he goes on, and the sect of Christians so named from him are not extinct at this day, meaning as he's writing that, we're still not extinct to this day many years later. But again, understand this. This is not a, a fan of Jesus who's writing this. This is someone, if anything, would sort of be opposed to Christ, opposed to Christians, and yet he's just a fair historian laying out the facts, right? And what is he saying? It, it's just so clear. This, this guy did all sorts of wonders and miracles. No one can deny it. He's more than just sort of some regular old guy, right? It's sort of like it's not even right just to call him a mere person. Clearly, he's more than that. And he says he's clearly the Messiah, clearly the Christ. And not only did he die, but again, it's just sort of a matter of fact. The eyewitness testimony is just so convincing. Clearly, he rose from the dead on the third day and was alive again, right? He just lays that out very clearly as a fair historian, right? This is... This is, again, from someone who is not a fan of Christians, but is just being fair to the, to the evidence that was there in his time. All the people who had seen, who had heard, who were still alive in Josephus' time, he's just laying out the facts. There's just such abundant evidence for the resurrection, right, for who Jesus is and what he did, what he accomplished, that he rose from the dead. And again, I, I could go on and on. It's not like this is the only evidence. It's just I don't have all day, you know, it, it's just a certain set time for the sermon. I could go on and on all day long looking at Scripture and outside of Scripture and laying out more and more and more evidence, but I want to sort of hit some of the high points. And again, for anyone here who, who might be like, you know, I'm here because it's Easter and I guess I'm supposed to go to church or some loved one of mine like dragged me here, but I don't want to be here. And you're just one who sort of, I don't know, I have a hard time believing this stuff. Uh, believe it. The evidence is overwhelming. It, it's just the reality. The eyewitness accounts, again, Listen to the expert in law and evidence himself who says the evidence is just overwhelming. It's so compelling, right? How can you deny it? Or Josephus himself, I, I, I'm always blown away. Like, how was he not a follower of Christ? He seems to sort of like affirm it all, but, but wasn't. He wasn't a follower of Christ. And he just lays out the facts. It's just so clear. This is what happened. This is who he is. This is what took place. And he rose from the dead. And again, sort of coming back to what I said, it, you know, if I can show that the resurrection really happened, then the only logical conclusion is to say that he must have really been who he said he was because regular people don't just rise from the dead. If he really rose from the dead, and again, the evidence is overwhelming, if he really rose from the dead, then he must really be who he said he was, God the Son in the flesh. He must really have accomplished what he said he accomplished on the cross, making true atonement for sin, for sin and then rose victoriously on that third day. And so as I think of sort of what's our takeaway, what, what's our application, I always want not just to sort of teach on scripture and, and talk about ideas, but apply it to our lives. I want to give sort of a, a two-part application for different groups of people. Uh, if you're one of those who up until this point, you just sort of, you still have your doubts. You know, it's like, I'm just not, I, I have a hard time believing that about Jesus and who he did, the gospel that you laid out. I understand, Pastor Steve, what you're saying, but, but I've just up until now at least had a hard time believing it. Uh, your application point is, is believe it at this point. Let this be the moment that, that, 
you just finally say, you know what? The evidence really is compelling. It really is overwhelming. He really did rise from the dead. And if he rose from the dead again, the rest of it must also be true. He must really be God the Son in the flesh who made atonement for sin and rose victoriously. Let this be the moment where you truly turn to Christ in repentant faith and then be forgiven and saved and, and receive everlasting life. And if that feels like that's you're just not there yet, I would at least say, at least do this. At, at least really give further consideration to Christ and who he is, the gospel message, the resurrection. Even if you're not at the point of saying, okay, I, you know, I just can't quite take that step to repent and believe. I'm still not sure. At least say to yourself, this is something that really could be true, and I ought to look further into it and give it more consideration. And, and if that's you, come up to me after the service. We'll talk. We can talk about it further. I'd love to have further discussion about that. But then I want to give another application point for a different group of people. Maybe you, you can say, you know, I, I already believe. I've given my life to the Lord. I have saving faith in him. If that's you, then this is your application. And it's just to give Christ thanks for what he has done for us. Uh, give him thanks for dying on a cross for you to pay for your sins so that you might be reconciled to God and have everlasting life. Just thank him for it. Rejoice in it. Rejoice in what he's done. And then go out into the world and boldly proclaim this message of the gospel to people who desperately need to hear it, that they might hear and repent and believe and be forgiven and saved as well. Amen. And let's pray. Oh, Lord Jesus, thank you for, for what you've done for us. As we talked about, we've sinned, we've disobeyed you, and we deserve judgment. And on our own, we have no way out of our sin. We're hopeless, helpless on our own. But we're not on our own. You came in love. You paid for our sin in full. And if we just turn to you in repentant faith, then we're forgiven and saved entirely as a gracious gift. And we thank you for that. And we're just in awe of you and what you've done. And we just praise you and worship you. Lord, I do pray that if there are some who maybe are here and, and just have doubted you, Lord Jesus, and who you are and what you've done, I pray that you just work in, in their hearts and minds. Open up their minds to the truth of the gospel, Lord. Uh, may this be the time that they truly believe and turn to you in, in saving faith and are forgiven and saved. Or at least that they would give further consideration to it, Lord, and, and just make them open to the gospel message. And again, we're just so grateful to you, Lord Jesus, for who you are and what you've done for us. And we just worship you and praise you with all that we are. In your name we pray. Amen.